0: Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Now the government's directive to ramp up welfare sanctions to stop what it calls the surge in benefit dependency under Labour is being slammed by parties on the left. And the coalition has told officials that beneficiaries who aren't doing enough to find a job must be penalised more rigorously than they were on the last government's watch. But Labour says that's ignoring the evidence about so-called tough love action. This is punching down from the National Party. They're ignoring all the evidence of what works when it comes to getting people off benefits and into sustainable employment. And the Greens say reducing, suspending or cancelling benefits as a punishment will only mire people in deeper poverty.
1: Sanctions remove people's ability to make ends meet. So all they will do is make people sicker, push people into food banks to make ends meet, and for children in those households, condemning them to a lifetime of growing up in hardship.
0: Well, joining us to discuss the government's welfare reset is Social Development Minister Louise Upston. Kia ora. Good morning, Minister. Good morning, Corin. I wonder if we could start with a big picture here. We've got a situation with an economy where unemployment is rising, albeit slowly, it is expected to rise back over 5% by next year. In fact, you could argue by design of the Reserve Bank, which is keen to slow demand, Is it reasonable to be putting back tougher sanctions on beneficiaries when they are going to face increased competition for jobs?
2: Yeah, listen. All we're doing with this reset is making sure that those who receive the job seeker benefit understand what their obligations are, and they're taking proactive steps to support themselves um, to be in work. Um, there is nothing about the sanctions that um, mean they're applied because someone can't find a job. It's about taking really sensible, practical steps um, to look for a job, and and for people who are on the job seeker benefit to do their bit.
0: Mm, But it's the types of jobs too and it's arguable that you're going to see fewer low school jobs which might be appropriate, there might be more temporary jobs and that can of course um, create more stress and complications for people who are already quite vulnerable.
2: Yeah, what we do want to see is is more people in work, and I make absolutely no excuses for that. Um, There is loads of evidence about how important and how beneficial being in work is, uh, not just for your economic wellbeing, but for your social wellbeing, you're connected to the community uh, and a range of other benefits. The other part of this reset um, that I wanted to make sure people were aware of is making sure that uh, work and income are more proactive and working with those on the job seeker benefit, and that's one of the reasons behind the 26 week uh, check in um, and the, the ability for job seekers to come into work and income, uh, make sure that they're getting the right support and actually getting practical steps to help mm. them find a job. You,
0: you say you want more people in work, and just coming back to that big picture question again, you remove the employment mandate from the Reserve Bank, they have to have a more razor focus on inflation that is likely or arguably going to mean interest rates stay higher for longer, that there is likely to be an increased slowdown in the economy. That is going to mean higher unemployment. Is that, not, is, is, is that, is that a, not unreasonable or, or is it reasonable to be putting more pressure on beneficiaries when you are by design effectively, and I know it's the Reserve Bank and they're independent, pushing up unemployment?
2: But what we've seen under the last six years of the Labour government is a widening gap between the unemployment rate and the percentage of people who are on the job seeker benefit—that's the gap that concerns me—and so that's why we're taking sensible steps to reset the welfare system, to support more on-job seekers into work, um, and that is the, the very clear mm. focus. Do, that do
0: I've you got. know? Do you have evidence that it is a relaxed use of or a more relaxed use of existing sanctions that has led to the increase in the job seeker?
2: Well, the the evidence we do have is is obviously that um, the use or the threat or the use of sanctions does lead to greater work exits. Um, And also the most recent evidence that's come out with the social outcomes model that very clearly shows there's been a massive increase in the average time people will spend on welfare. Is this the Taylor Fry's
0: analysis? Is that the one you're referring to?
2: Yeah, for a young person, that's gone up nine years to now be 24 years for someone who's gone on to welfare under 20. Yes, but according to as the New well Zealand as...
0: Herald, which has reported on that research, the Taylor Fry research, Taylor Fry itself says it can't say what the exact reasons for the changes are. That says the reasons for these changes are unclear, and that's in reference to the exit rates. So... And
2: that's why we're taking a number of steps. Uh, we announced two yesterday. One is to make sure that the, there are obligations and there are consequences for people who don't meet their obligations to look for work, as well as the proactive check-in um, to make sure that job seekers are coming into work and income, getting additional support if sure, they require but, but what they're saying is that, is that, that it's not clear
0: work. why the job seeker... Nobody disputes the fact that the job seeker rate has gone up and it seems odd when you've got when you've had low unemployment. But we've obviously had... Covid and that was an, a, a disruptor. Now that seems to be coming off. but Taylor Fry says they can't they can't explain that there aren't the exact reasons aren't clear. Would you not have thought it would be good to go and have a look and see why that is rather than just assume it, that it is the use of sanctions?
2: well we we're, we're clear about the fact that a fifty seven percent increase in the number of job seekers on job seeker benefit at the same time there was a 58 percent reduction in the use of sanctions. Is empirical evidence enough for us? As I said, there are a number of steps we are taking. There is not one thing that fixes this, um, and that's why these two steps that we announced yesterday are are part of a range of actions we will take um, to make sure that we give more people on benefit the opportunities and choices that come from work, and I will not remove myself from that focus.
0: So, OK, so you're just going with the current numbers. That's enough evidence for you. You're not going to go into any further research to see what's going on there?
2: Well, we, we're constantly looking at um, what's behind the numbers, what's working, what's not working. Uh, and I've talked about um, evidence, um, earlier evidence from from 2010. I, I accept that doesn't necessarily fit um, the previous government's uh, view when they had contradictory advice. Um, but the social outcomes model where a young person going on to welfare now on average will spend 24 years and a significant increase of 70,000 more people on the JobSeeker benefit is enough for me to sure. take action okay. and be deeply concerned.
0: Okay, but you, yeah, you talk about your evidence from 2010. The other other evidence uh, suggests that harsh, harsh sanctions have uh, Adverse effects that drive people away rather than closer to employment. I mean, there's a pretty comprehensive report from the Ministry of Social Development for the working group done in 2018 that's gone through all of the literature, looked at overseas examples. New Zealand's the 14th, you know, harshest regime out of 40 countries. What's wrong with that evidence?
2: Well, as I'm saying, there's there's, there's... Uh, Evidence that provides different points of view, as well as the most recent evidence about the massive increase in benefit numbers. At the same time, there was a massive decrease in the use of sanctions, um, as well as the Taylor Fry report, which is just, you know, in the last couple of weeks. Mm. That report's been done every year, and we've had a minister, the previous minister, who doesn't recall ever having seen it, when it clearly demonstrates a welfare system that isn't working and wasn't working and stopped working under her watch. I'm not willing to, to not take action and do everything we can to support more New Zealanders into work. I understand and that. It's can only I just... fair on those who are also in work and it's their work and their tax that supports those on welfare. Sure. Just one last it's quick a, question. System that reports that just, needs to Just one last quick question, today.
0: if I can. I just want to get this in. You said, it was said yesterday, that somebody with cancer would be required to look for part-time work or, or at least be work-ready if they're on that job seeker. I mean, is that reasonable? I mean, I know, of course, some people with cancer do want to work and, and can work, but... That's a you know huge complexity in their life to have the threat of losing their benefit hanging over them at the same time.
2: Yeah, so so they're not on the they're not on the job seeker work ready um, benefits, so they would have different um, obligations. And look, the the frontline staff at Work and Income do an incredible job, and they would know exactly how to deal with uh, an individual circumstances like the one that you present. Uh, and if it was appropriate, if they were well enough at that period of time to be looking for part-time work, that would be appropriate. For okay. some, it's not. For some, it's not. And I want to make that point clear.
0: OK. Thank you very much for your time. That is the Social Development Minister, Louise Upston.
3: We're listening to all of that and joining us now is our political editor, Joe Moyer. Kia ora, good morning, Joe. Hi anchor We do have a poll to talk about as well, but let 's talk about the uh, the beneficiaries uh, well the reset uh, being talked about here. What is going on there? We know the government does have a traffic light system which is going to be introduced later. Why are they talking about this reset now?
4: Look, I think you just need to go back to Sunday when you saw the Prime Minister Christopher Luxon make his State of the Nation speech. He talked in that about tough love, you know, the free ride is over and here he was 24 hours later putting out an action, a deliverable and that's important for him at the moment. You know, there's been a bit of uh, criticism from the opposition and others about how this new coalition government has been doing a lot of repealing and getting rid of things, you know, sort of a bit of a negative vibe going on there. This was something where the Prime Minister was able to say, we are taking action, we're doing something about it and look, it's bread and butter stuff um, for all three coalition government parties as well. I think Christopher Luxon's taken an opportunity here, alongside his National Party Minister Louise Upston to really have the oxygen on this one. You have seen both Winston Peters and David Seymour been sucking up so much of that government oxygen of late over the last few months um, in the first sort of, uh, what are we, 80 odd days of the um, 100 day plan. This was a really Really easy, I guess, opportunity for national to to put some runs on the board, really, um, and and take it off uh, New Zealand first and act who who support this as well and would happily be talking about it, but they are not. It's national who's talking about it here.
3: Is there any downside risk though in terms of how they're painting themselves?
4: No, I don't think so, because I think if you look at the um, sort of bread and butter stuff of uh, of people who have said that they are voting for national during the campaign period, you know, who who talk to media about why they were, were voting national at New Zealand First, they were wanting to talk about things like getting, you know, tougher on crime um, and getting more people working. I think uh, one of the lines that um, was in the post-cabinet press conference yesterday was uh, when low- and middle-income workers go to work to fund the welfare system, System. They have an expectation that those who receive the benefit do their bit, and I don't think anyone will think that's unreasonable. Now they're going to keep hammering that
3: line because actually their voters will agree with that. Mm. And it's pushing that narrative again, isn't it, of a wasteful uh, of the previous Labor government being wasteful and uh, you know spendthrifts with with that taxpayer money. Uh, okay, let's look at this uh, latest poll that was out uh, last night. Not a lot of movement for the Prime Minister for Nationals' position.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was a an interesting poll probably because it didn't really say that much in terms of any change. Um, the results are so similar to what you saw um, in October at the election result. You know, the movements were sort of, you know, 0.8 here, 0.6 here, or within margin of error type stuff. Looking at the preferred Prime Minister, though, uh, that was a comparison with uh, One News Varian's previous poll in October, which of course had... Uh, Christopher Luxon steady on 25 and Chris Hipkins down 10 points to 15. I don't think it's that surprising that Chris Hipkins has taken that dive. He probably wouldn't have wanted to take as much of a dive. Christopher Luxon won't necessarily be stoked about uh, not having had that sort of traditional prime ministerial um, bump that does often, you know, come after an election result. But in saying that, he's the prime minister, so who cares? It's a numbers game, right, in terms of the election National got the numbers to form a coalition... He didn't, wasn't getting 40s in the, the preferred prime minister and National wasn't getting into 40s as a party. But here they are. They formed a three-party coalition government and Christopher Luxon is the prime minister. And I think he'd probably like to see a little bit of a bump, but he's probably not going to be staying awake at night over it. OK,
3: what about Chris Hipkins? I know you said it wasn't surprising. We are in this uh, part of the cycle, of the election cycle, where obviously the government, and now there being three three members of the coalition government, taking up a lot of the oxygen. Will, not surprising. But will he be worried by that?
4: Yeah, look, I mean, Chris Hopkins yesterday, uh, when that poll result came out, talked about, uh, you know, polls fluctuate and I'm not the prime minister. And, and he has been uh, pretty quiet It's hard work in opposition. I mean, we talk about it being the hardest job in politics, and it really is. I think the other problem, too, for uh, Chris Hipkins at the moment is, you know, the party's undergoing a bit of a reset. They had a a pretty terrible result uh, at the election and need to really work out their path forward from here. There's going to be some difficult conversations about what they're going to do, um, you know, in the tax space, for example. And they just aren't yet at the point of sorting that out. The Greens are also having an interesting situation at the moment with this change, um, you know, incoming change of co-leader. Now, depending on who that is, it's obviously most likely to be Chloe Swarbrick. That could shift the party a little bit in terms of what their focus is. You know, there's uh, chatter about the fact that maybe the the Green Party will push more towards that sort of social social justice space and not having uh, James Shaw in that sort of uh, more climate change space. So, look, there's a lot going on in the left at the moment. You've also got Te Pāti Māori who got a bit of a bump in that poll too. Um, uh, it will be interesting to see how that opposition and those three opposition parties start to potentially work together to hold the government to account as well because you do now have the situation of a three-party coalition are
3: you going to have a three-party opposition and what will that look like as well mm, something to watch out for thank you very much for that that is our political editor joe Moyer.
0: 25 minutes past 7 will some universities could run out of cash this year or breach their borrowing limits the tertiary education commission made the warning in a financial overview of the sector delivered to incoming Tertiary Education Minister Penny Simmons in November. It says it regarded Victoria and Massey universities as high-risk institutions and Lincoln and Waikato as medium-risk. Those those, uh, universities deny that they're going to run out of money, but they admit that times are tough. Here's our education correspondent, John Gerritsen. Hi, John. Morning, Corin. What is
5: going on here? How serious is this? OK, this is a, a, a possibility, It could be. It's a warning to the government that times are extremely tough for universities. Many of them made deficits last year. In fact... Deficits of such significance that for the first time the entire sector could record a net de- deficit collectively. That's never happened before. Um, so it's saying to the government, look, if things don't go well this year, if domestic enrolments don't go well, and especially in international enrolments or there's unexpected shocks, some universities could run out of money to pay the bills. They're going to need to borrow money and some are, some are banging right up against their official borrowing limits. So you're talking about a liquidity crisis it's a possibility, not a certainty. So we've just got to wait and see how it ends mm. out. Lots of things at play here. I mean, you've got uh, you've got
0: COVID, the after effects of COVID, perhaps still starting to wash through. Hopefully, starting to wash out. Uh, the international students have they come back as as much as expected? And then you've got a very strong labour market, it's, which is going to start to ease. But uh, all those factors would I, I would have I thought moved against the universities.
5: Yeah absolutely I mean they suffered a real shock in that domestic enrolment spiked and I think it was 2021 and then just dropped away again 2022, stayed low 23 um, and the international students were still coming back so for some uh, financially that was a, a really big problem so this year's critical. The word is so far international students are coming back in the numbers that were expected perhaps even better. Domestic are probably holding steady, many of the universities are saying their enrolments are positive, quite what that means we don't know. Um, the The forecasts certainly are for domestic um, enrolments to, to just pretty much be unchanged this year. If they drop away, or drop away significantly, that would be a problem. Is it going to put the focus on some of the individual
0: universities and their management? I mean, are some of the universities going to face criticism for what they've decided to invest in or not?
5: Well, the Commission's briefing says that, look, some universities were slower than others to respond to uh, changes in their enrolments. And when you talk to the universities themselves, they go, well, you know, some of these, are, these changes happen very suddenly. It's actually pretty difficult to shed courses and, and lay off staff and so forth when you've got a totally unexpected drop in enrolments as happened in 2022. Uh, so, yeah, there will be a bit of scrutiny on, on that. Um, certainly the people I've talked to, I've talked to a few vice-chancellors, they're saying, look, this year is looking better. Yeah, uh, last year maybe may uh, your assessment of us as being high risk or whatever was due to our deficit, but but this year's looking better. We're not high risk anymore.
0: I mean, the great bugbear often is, isn't it, that the universities too much money on marketing and fancy logos and new buildings and this sort of thing. Is that likely to be an area that gets some focus? Well I mean,
5: every every area of spending is under scrutiny but if you look at that, some of that, uh, there's one of the points in this document is that uh, Massey and Victoria lost their market share of school leavers and Canterbury increased. Now look I don't know what Canterbury was doing, maybe it, that marketing spend was worthwhile but boy it cost Victoria and Massey uh, dearly.
0: John Gerriton thank you very much for the update that's our education correspondent there now the fire in Waikari Valley is contained but while residents of the nearby North Canterbury town of Waipara are back home they remain on high alert. The 300 hectare scrub fire broke out on Sunday night forcing the evacuation of nearby rural properties. And Given the parched conditions throughout the region there are fears that a repeat could be just around the corner. Our reporter Adam Burns has been in Waipara talking to relieved locals.
2: I'm really grateful for you guys coming in and, and supporting us, but thank you. more importantly, this team,
6: thank you. Thank you. Waipira locals expressing their gratitude to fire and emergency officials yesterday. Moments earlier, incident controller Des Irving said they could return to their homes less than 24 hours after being told to leave. The fire is now contained, but the is not out. All right, there's a big difference. Containment means that you can go home tonight, All Right. But you still have to be vigilant. We're going to be here for a few days yet. No livestock or properties were lost in the blaze. Waipata farmer Tony Knowles was at yesterday's meeting. He says he was grateful he could return home to relax after enduring a sleepless night.
5: I slept in the truck because there's young families and things here with mattresses and things. And I had a couple of dogs on the back of the truck, so I thought I'll just park up out there. Did
6: you get much sleep?
5: Nah, because the dogs were wriggling and they rocked the truck, and then when they weren't rocking the truck, the bloody Northwest wind was. So (laughs) I could have done better, but yeah, who's going to sleep anyway?
6: Following the community briefing, locals wasted no time settling back into their properties along Glenmark Drive. Carlos Earle says he was relieved to be home. Yeah, it was a pretty good feeling being able to come home again, sleep in your own bed tonight. It was a bit concerning with how long the port hills has been going on. thought it might be a few days, but they seem to have done a good job containing it so far. Further down the road, Mark Sidey was thankful to be back. The farmer had feared the worst.
5: Total fear of losing everything, probably, yeah, with the way the wind was blowing and where we could see the fire was and the fuel we had in front of it coming towards our property. But somehow they've stopped it. Getting into the forest at the back, and that's probably what saved most of the district, I would have thought.
6: Mark Seidey says although he is pleased to be home, he
5: remains on high alert. A fire could start any time around here at the moment. Very vigilant on the farm at the moment with motorbikes and working in the heat of the day, just what we're up to and anything could happen. Talking to a friend a week ago who's too scared to ride a horse around the port hills at the moment in case the shoes hit a rock and spark and... Up she goes. Strong winds limited
6: fire and emergencies efforts in the air yesterday, with only two specialist helicopters able to be used. Ground crews remained on scene overnight. Adam Burns with that report.
3: A $5.5 million deficit in Hato Hone, St John's finances, has forced the ambulance service to cut back on its staff cover. The charity doesn't expect its cuts to ambulance call-outs to affect the quality of patient care, but lower-priority patients may have to wait longer for an ambulance. Now, the Ambulance Association's National Secretary Mark Quinn told RNZ that the ambulance service's cost-cutting measures could hold potentially fatal outcomes for patients.
1: So we've already got problems of ramping at various hospitals around the country, delaying and was able to exit the emergency departments and respond out in the community. So now we're doing it with less resources on the day to actually get there, and the prioritisation of those calls means that what appears to be a lower priority job gets put down in, in, in terms of uh, response times ending up an hour's delay, when in fact, and as history has shown, some of those responses should have been sooner because they end up becoming quite serious and having negative outcomes for the patient
3: Ha hone, St John's Deputy Chief Executive Dan Ose joins us now for more on this Kia ora, good morning Good morning That is a fairly dire warning from the Ambulance Association that people could essentially die because of the reduction in staffing here What do you say to that?
1: So from a Hatahone St John perspective, um, we have been deploying extra resource at peak times and in difficult areas. So over winter, we've deployed um, additional resource um, in in areas that have been affected by weather events. We've uh, um, uh, deployed additional resource. Um, In addition to that, like everyone, our costs have been running higher, so we have to actively manage those. Now, from a Hatahone St John perspective, I think it's important to note that As people will be aware, our vacancy has been running high over the last two to three years. Um, What that's done is that's enabled us the gap in our finances to up-resource at certain times of year and have some, um, some gap at other times of year. This year, we're finding that our vacancy is actually so low that we just don't have that same gap. Um, where we can get some financial benefit, essentially, um, from having shifts that we can't fill. So this year, we're having to actively fill up. Uh, so we're having to actively manage that. Um, and we're having to do that because our vacancy is the lowest it's been in years. So we've got 207 more frontline staff than we did at the same time last year. Um, and that's meaning that we need to more actively manage our budget and our resource deployment to demand throughout the year.
3: So you've actually got more than enough staff. Many so right now,
1: right now we're in the best position that we've been for years, um, and that's what's created a lot of pressure on us um, because we do do not have the same gaps we had previously, and that's put a heck of a lot of uh, pressure on our budget. Um, and it's important to us that we have the most amount of resource available when demand is highest. And right now, through summer, our demand simply isn't as high as it is through winter. And so, my role is to make sure that we manage the service. So we've got the financial debt so that when Kiwis need us to be deploying additional resource at peak times, such as through winter, we've got the financial ability to do that.
3: So in terms of how this would affect patients, will there be any impact?
1: So if a patient has a low acuity issue, so if you've got a non-life-threatening emergency, there may be that there is some delay for you. And so for those patients, we would always say your first port of call should be Healthline, um, you know or your GP um, your last point of call if you've got a non-life threatening uh, emergency or a non-life threatening problem should be the ambulance service now in terms of in terms of where we're managing our recall so in areas where we've got a network of ambulances that's where we're managing our recall budget if you've only got one ambulance locally so for example if you're in tiana clearly we're going to make sure we recall in those areas so you've got coverage in your community
3: Okay um, and just just in terms of what is urgent and what isn't urgent uh, how is that triaging done because a person may not be in a fit state to to know where they fall in that
1: yeah, that's right. So when people dial triple they're triaged by a call handler using a prescribed set of questions using an international system. Effectively, that system aims to triage people into two categories. The first is life-threatening. The second is non-life-threatening. If you've got a life-threatening emergency, then you will get the closest ambulance response. And so that, that might be a manager, that might be a rapid response vehicle. In some areas, that may be support from Fire and Emergency New Zealand. That won't change. If you've got a non life threatening problem, one of two things will happen. Either you'll get an ambulance when one is available, and if it's a not life threatening problem, and we've got people that call us because they have a sore ankle from sport on the weekend, now clearly they might not be mobilising, but they don't need an ambulance right now. Um, and so those patients, if they're non mobile, will get a delayed response. For everyone else, um, you'll get a phone call back from a nurse or paramedic who will ask you a number of questions to assess whether or not you need an ambulance response or actually whether or not a health provider another health provider is best um, suited to meet your health needs
3: okay thank you for your time this morning that's hato horn there st john's uh, deputy chief executive dan owes
1: you've been
5: listening to morning report top stories